Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Most Hexel of the Podcast, your true crime, paranormal, all things strange and peculiar comedy podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Gina. I'm your other host, Danielle. And we are back, and we are finally finished with this month-long traumatic-ass period of murders mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that, we, mm-hmm. that we decided to do that we thought would be such a good idea, which it is. Don't get me wrong. This was a good time. I learned a lot, but also... I'm happy it's over. I'm happy it's over, and I had to find myself... You know, because, like, all we do is watch murder documentaries mm-hmm. and Mindhunter, and that's it. And I couldn't even I couldn't even do that. I couldn't even watch ghost shows for a little bit because I was like, I need to watch... I need to watch a nice... Take a nice break and do, like, uh, the whole Nickelodeon section on Paramount+. Plus. Dad, or I do Golden Girls. I do Golden Girls and Designing Women. 80s, simple sitcoms about empowered women are so comforting. And then just Spongebob. And right. I also was... Yes. Well, I, so I watched um, the video with Richard Speck and it was horribly disturbing. And then I decided, I was like, you know what I need? I need a break. So what I'm going to do... I'm going to put on Ghost Adventures. And I was like, I just want to watch some absolute clownery. You know what's sad is that I did the exact same thing. Why are we the same fucking person? Danielle and I only watched three TV shows. We watched Paranormal State. Paranormal State. Which which ended in (laughs) 2011. We watched Ghost Adventures and we watched Hoarders. Mm -hmm. That's it. I went, I went. But there's o- no more Hoarders episodes. I was out well, of no, Hoarders, no, no. so I was like, I was so well. mad. I went over to her house a few weeks ago. I was like, did you see the new Hoarders episodes on Netflix? Let's watch them. And she goes, I finished them all. I was like, you fucking bitch. I was like, I didn't watch them just to watch them with you. So now you're going to have to re-watch them with I me. I mean, I don't mind watching Human Travesty. It makes me just, you know, I mean, obviously it's horrible. Like, right. Not, this whole podcast is human travesty. It's, so. it's whole, yeah, the whole podcast is human travesty. But the thing is, I just love to sit down on my couch and be like, you know what? Yes, I have things strewn about my own house. But at least, at the very least, I'm not sitting here like sleeping on an entire bed made of hardened roaches. No, you know what I mean? you're not like, shitting into a bucket and then eating food next to it. So yeah, that's a, it's an upgrade. We're there. We're there. We're, we're making. We're halfway it. We're okay. there. Yeah. Uh, speaking of human travesty, our <laughs> final episode for Murderous May is the case and the murders, which was done, unfortunately, by Richard Speck. And this mm-hmm. man is one of the bigger pieces of shit. Speaking of shit, he's worse than of shit I buckets, even thought. That's what the, he's that's what he is. Worse than even I thought. I was like, I mean, I knew the case very well, right? But it's even worse than I thought it was going to be, because I was just like, oh, okay, like I know this case, it's whatever. Because you think about, and you're like, and then and then you're like reminded of all the grizzly details. Like I was re listening mm-hmm. to the episode of that uh, Karen did for my favorite murder, where yeah. she talked about Richard Speck, and even I mean that was like a full episode, like solely based on him but even still i'm just sitting there and i'm going through the book that i'm using for this which is actually the same one that i use for the grime sisters and i'm just like but why but why but what was the reason but what was the reason like that was literally me for whomst Mm -hmm. but like danielle i mentioned before we wanted to mainly base this on the victims and their stories and their families and what happened rather than Richard Speck and going into, like, we'll, we'll talk about, we'll get into it. But 
you know, like, I'm just, I don't give a shit about his fucking background. I don't yeah, care. No, it's what, it, we did the similar structure that we did for the John Wayne Gacy episodes mm-hmm. where it's, we give you a little bit of background, but we're not going to focus so much on him and shift the focus to these victims because at the end of the day, like, he's a piece of shit. I don't care. Like, that's the thing. I'm sometimes I think certain killers you're kind of like fascinated like how do they become that way I'm like this guy like was always a piece of shit and I don't care Ed Gein yeah like I could learn about Ed Gein and what a piece of shit he is all day long because there's more it's not just like pure evil I mean what he did was horrible that's right. not but he was also extremely extremely uh, he was not extremely right. mentally ill yeah he was extremely extremely mentally ill so it's just like a different kind of it's weird. Like, it's not... I mean, it's evil. But this is... Hit. Right. We, ta- we talked about evil it. For the sake yeah. Of, yeah. Richard Speck is just evil for the sake of evil. John McGacy is evil for the sake of evil. So it's just like a... It's, it's so strange. Like, even reading about his background... You know, sometimes when you're hearing about serial killers, you have, like, a little bit of sympathy. Like, if they have, like, childhood trauma, like, these things... You're kind of like, oh man, like that sucks, and then you hear about what they do, and you're like, okay, no, 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 no. yeah, like, it's over. Like just going through, like what happened to each of the victims in this. Like I was just sitting here, and I was like, you know what? Like, I don't like it. No, I'm like, like no like amount it. of childhood um, abuse is like excuses this, and especially too, like, and we'll get into it, kind of like what he, what goes on in this trial, and what he says, and what he does, and. It's just like, okay, no, 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 no. So this man was just pure evil for the sake of being pure evil. Exactly. So I let's guess get let's let's get into it. Let's let's just fucking do it. So let's start from the beginning. Okay, so we're gonna get into a little bit of Richard's background. So for those who don't know, Richard Benjamin Speck was born on December sixth of nineteen forty one in Kirkwood, Illinois. Represent he was from no, I don't know. I don't even know. You don't, I don't is. even know. You don't even know where that is. I'm like, shut your mouth. <laughs> I was like, represent. I was like, fucking Kirkwood. From her, the Kirkwood. You know her, how, how Karen always does like makes up like the mascot for each city. This one will be the the Kirkwood. The Kirkwood Kookaburras. The Crans. Oh, I said Kookaburras. That too. Um, he was from a religious family with eight children, and he so it's big family. Yes. So his mom, or his dad died when he was younger, and then his mom remarries an extremely abusive man who ends up just, he's a, he's like, it's one of those situations where it's like, yes, I feel bad for you, but also like a lot of people come from this background, so right. they don't, they don't act up. But his stepfather was extremely abusive to him. He was an alcoholic, like typical kind of abuse story here with a lot of serial killers and yes. just really horrible fathers or really horrible mothers. So his stepfather was horribly abusive to him. So by ninth grade, he was already dropping out of school. He was into drinking and drugs since yes. he was a preteen. He got arrested. He was arrested since the age of 13. So he was essentially this huge juvenile delinquent and he loved drugs. He loved partying. Like, And that carried on into his whole life. He always yeah. was one for a party. He always loved living that certain lifestyle so he was full-on fergie great gatsby a little party never killed nobody yeah skip on a butt let's mm-hmm. go he was in full <laughs> he did the full like he, he showed up in full um fergie fish yes so in 1962 he gets married to shirley malone who he had his daughter bobby lynn with 
So she was only 15 when he married her, and they'd only known each other for, like, three weeks right. at this point. And he was, like, 19, right? Yeah, he was, like, 19. He was yeah. older than her. And during the time that his daughter was born, he was actually in prison, which, que surprise. He, this, <laughs> this man was in prison 41 times. Or, like, he had been arrested, prosecuted. He was in some way involved in the legal system literally 14 times. This entire four, case. Four, no, I'm sorry, 41 times. Of course. This entire case is just going to be que surprise. Yeah, que surprise. Que surprise. So he was in prison when his daughter was born. And by 1963, he is in pre- he's in prison again. He was there for theft and check fraud. He robbed a grocery store and he cashed his co-worker's check. He gets granted parole in 1965. He spends one month out of prison, then gets arrested again for assault. He goes to prison for six months. For attacking a woman in a parking lot with a huge knife. Yes. This is the kind of stuff that I didn't know. Is like these sort of preliminary Was this crime. one, was I mean, the, the big knife, was that in Monmouth? When he was in Monmouth? No. Okay. I think we're going to go, we're going to, that's later. Okay. I get, there's so, he has so fucking money, I can't even keep track of it. So he attacked a woman in a parking lot with a huge knife. And then this is when he gets his famous born to raise hell tattoo. It was during this time period. I'm just sad that he stigmatized that because if it, if if Richard Speck had never had this tattoo, honestly, I probably might have gotten it. I mean, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of a badass tattoo idea, just not on him. He just no, ruined it. No, he ruined it. So he, of course, is extremely abusive to his wife when he's in and out of jail. He's not reliable. He's horrible to her. He used to rape her at knife point mm-hmm. and generally just be horrific to her. Right. So she ended up by early 1966, she basically was like, I'm done. I've had it. And she files for a divorce from him. Yes. Now, he had moved to, he was in Illinois until I think he was about 10. When his mom gets remarried, they moved to Texas. Mm-hmm. So he was living in Dallas at this time. And he got arrested for burglary and assault charges. And then he goes to Chicago to live with his sister, Martha. So that's what lands him back here. Yes. So he's running from the cops. He was only in his mid-20s at this point. He's been arrested almost 40 times. He was big on money fraud and assaulting people. That's what he went to jail the most for was just money fraud or assaulting people or robbery. It was all just money or violence. Those are the two things that this guy does well. Exactly. And then he goes to Monmouth to live with his sister. And then he works as a carpenter for a month. And then, I mean, this is kind of me. He soon quits that job in order to hang at the local tavern. Yeah, literally. He, just, he was in Monmouth to just sit around and be trash. Because right. he got a job. Yeah, he gets a job as a carpenter and all this. And this is when in Monmouth he rapes a 65 year old woman while breaking into her house, and her name is Virgil Harris. Yes. And that happens on April 3rd of 1966. And in the same weekend, another house near here is broken into, and cigarettes and bread are stolen, which is, like, petty for the sake of petty. Yeah. Like, you you He you just wanted a reason trouble. to do something. Literally, I'm like, you took the trouble to break into somebody's house, and you only stole cigarettes and bread. I mean... Like, okay. You know, the... Two food groups. I mean, yeah. And then, I didn't know this, but he was suspected of killing a 32-year-old female bartender named Mary Kay Pierce on April 9th. So, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that she 
was even I didn't even know there were other kind of lead up murders. Yeah, but there's actually a lot of them. So actually, in the that book, happened here. Yeah, and the I the dates might vary. You never know. But there's the the dates on this are so weird because there's yeah. different ones for different dates, like depending on the articles that I read. Right, that one was from like the uh, article from the six. Because in the book I have, it says on April thirteenth, Mary Kay Pierce, a barmaid at Frank's place, was found dead in a shed behind the tavern. Well, yeah, she went missing on April 9th. She's reported missing oh, on April and the, 13th. Okay, so it must have been they, and then, the murder was and then she the was, 13th. She was found on April 13th. Gotcha. That makes more yeah. sense. But yeah, apparently her liver had been ruptured from a blow to her abdomen. And he was brought into questioning, but the interrogation was cut short because he got sick, apparently. And then he promises to return on April 19th for more questions, but he never did. Case Supreme. Yeah, because why the he fuck literally would just he? left. Right. And he literally, like, she was a mom of two girls and literally was found beaten, like, so hard. Like, he hit her. They think he hit her with a, a tree branch. So he must have hit her so hard, her rib literally broke and punctured her liver. Oh, my God. And yeah. then she was found in an unused hog shed, which he had helped build. So it's no, I, I was like, there's no way that he didn't do this. Like, no. there's just no way. And then her, like, when they, so he leaves. He's like, goodbye, everybody. When he you could just call, yeah. Back to Chicago. When you could just fucking call in sick to be fucking interrogated. Yeah. I mean, like, they were oh like, God, yeah, okay, whatever. Really they literally said, oh, hey, literally. They were like, yeah. hey, you need to stay in town. So don't go anywhere. And he was like, yeah, for sure, he for was sure. Like, absolutely. And he backflipped his way back to Chicago and literally, they went into the hotel room to go find him and they found uh, Virgil Williams. They found her jewelry in his room. Yes. And it was just the costume jewelry because he was like, okay, there's no money in it. Forget it. So he just left it there like not a care in the world. Yes. So yeah. he goes to escape to Chicago after this. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Apparently he told the manager that he was going to the laundromat, but he caught a bus to Chicago. <laughs> he was like, yeah, he was like, like I'm going to go wash my dirty ass clothes. And he was like, just kidding. I'm going to sit in my dirty ass clothes on a Greyhound to Chicago. And that's exactly, <laughs> Wait. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know the historical facts for that, but that's why I imagine in my head that he hasn't washed that his clothes That is definitely how that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Exactly. This man was dirt nasty. Yeah. So he re- he goes back home to his sister, Martha, and his brother-in-law, Gene Thornton. And they have a second floor apartment in the city's northwest side. And it, obviously, like, it's a crowded small apartment. But Speck was like, oh, like, well, I'm not going to be here that much. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to, you know, crash on your couch. And that was when he decided, he told them that he was going to work as emergent seaman. Um, but after several days of doing nothing... She literally, like, well, his sister was frustrated, and then his brother-in-law is literally like, I'm going to drive you to the National Maritime Union Hall, and I'm going to get you this fucking job, because you need to get out of our house. Yeah. He went into the tradition of my father, which is, the, you know, the merchant seaman. My father yes. was also one of them. <laughs> so this was in April of 1966, is when he was, or they took him over there, and they were like, or, you got to get a job, my guy. Like, this is over for you. But he yeah. was during this time. So he had, I think, bounced around a little bit before he came to Chicago because he was wanted by the police in Indiana in regards to the murder of three girls who went missing, um, I think, on July 2nd of 1966. Okay. So he was in Chicago in April, and then, like, he was bouncing around from there. So he was wanted for those three the murder of those three girls there was no bodies found he was also wanted for questioning in michigan because there was four different murders of women between the ages of seven to 60 years old 
who his ship was actually docked when these murders occurred. Right. So he was in Michigan when these murders occurred. So he's wanted in two different states for questioning by July of 1966. It just gets so, so frustrating. And it's like the same thing with Gacy, you know, where it's like there could have yeah. been so many more people and we'll just, we'll never know. No, we'll never know. I don't know if they ended up prosecuting any of these cases. Like, I think they were kind of just like he got, which we'll talk about, he got what he got and they they were okay with it because it was like he's in prison now. Yeah. But um, there's a lot of murders that I didn't know. I had no idea that he had even committed in the first place. I was like, damn. So he's wanted for like four murders here, three murders here. He's like going his way across the Midwest, just killing all these people. And we only know him as being infamous for these eight murders. Right. You never know. There's some that you never know. They may never get justice for, but we'll find out what he did get justice for. Justice in hell. (laughs) 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 Um, So he was essentially between all of this, all like the month leading up to what we're getting to. He was essentially just going to the Maritime Union hiring hall and applying for work. And this Maritime Union Hall was near the two-story townhouses that were used by a hospital for nursing student dorms. And this is one block east from there. So, like, they're right there. He would see the nurses in their free time. They would sit in their yard and sunbathe or they would walk around. Um, They would pass by the Union Hall all the time because there was an ice cream shop in the corner over there. And so it's kind of believed that he would always see nurses in this area and kind of that's how they caught his eye. Right. Because they were right there by the Union Hall. Yeah, the Union Hall was located at 2315 East 100th Street, and the townhouses were 2319. 19. So it's super close by. Yeah, so they're right there. Um, so on July 8th of 1966, Richard had been applying to go on cargo ships at the hiring hall, at the union hiring hall. Mm-hmm. And he kept getting turned down in favor of other people. So he'd been getting denied for days on end. And so they would say, oh, hey, we want, we're taking somebody else instead, someone with more seniority than you. So he, on July 13th, which is the day in question, yes. the day of like everything horrible. And that's why like, his brother-in-law took him there. And yeah. then they found out that he couldn't do it. And his brother-in-law literally was like, well, I'm still not letting you in. Handed Richard Speck $25 and wished him well and then drove off. Literally, my mom dropped me off. Yeah, at college. (laughs) My mom dropped me off at college. Give me $25 and wish me well. Exactly. (laughs) So he, of course, is very pissed off about this. So he decides that he's going to go down to the shipyard inn, which is about a mile and a half away from the union hall. Mm -hmm. And that night he ends up kidnapping a bartender named Ella Mae Hooper, who is 53 years old. He takes her back to his room and he rapes her repeatedly before he steals her money order and her 22 handgun. Yes. And I, I made a point because in the book, and this is like, you know, nothing on the author, like this was written a while ago, but it says, when he left, it says he borrowed a twenty-two caliber. And I was like, he didn't borrow that shit. He, he didn't borrow it. No, he took it, it from After her. he raped this woman. Yeah. He so, raped her and then he took her gun because this was a gun she used for protection. This was a right. protection gun. 
from people like him and he took it so i yes. d- I doubt she would just give him her gun no she was like here you go have a good day thank you yeah i wish she you sent will. him on his way yeah no <laughs> so he then does all of this horrible shit and then goes back to drink at the bar until 10 30 which is when he decides to walk back towards the nmu hiring hall armed with ella's stolen handgun and a switchblade yes it's unknown whether he was really intoxicated or if he was under the influence of drugs that's kind of something that's debated he says that he was drinking like heavily he was heavily intoxicated at this point and he also had taken acid that's what he said he said that during this night yeah no sorry i was gonna say also uh, for mine it says that on july 13th a depressed and angry speck was drinking heavily in the shipyard inn and after a volatile combination of pills and liquor he suddenly got to urge to raise some hell yeah so So he was it's kind of like that's his account of it right we don't know we don't know what happened but of course he's gonna try to make it look like he wasn't in control because exactly yeah and then it was said he later well exactly he later said he remembers nothing after this point yeah this is uh, this is the blackout point he remembers going like he remembers this walk and nothing else right the blackout point which for me is a quesadilla and two bean burritos. Then you black out. And then I black out. That's the Correct. that's the <laughs> limit. That, that's the tipping point for me. Oh, and also um obviously a potato taco. Two potato Ugh. tacos in there. It's gotta at I least be four. No, I want Taco Bell. They deliver till like two AM, so I might. They do. Do it. <laughs> right now. So <laughs> right the second excuse me guys, I'll be right back. I'm gonna order some T B. Mm-hmm. Not, Not tuberculosis though. Not tuberculosis, though. No. Anyway, speaking of horrible diseases on this earth, (laughs) Richard Speck. (laughs) You're not wrong. I mean, yeah. So he arrives at the nursing dormitory at 2319 East 100th Street in Chicago at 11 o'clock. This is still, we're still in July 13th. Yes. So... He pried open the screen of a first floor window and then he reached inside to basically unlock the door handle. Yeah. And this is how he ends up sneaking into the townhouse. So one of the nurses who's going to be really important in this case is Corazon Amurao. Yes, Cora. We're going to call her Cora. And she is a 23-year-old Filipina exchange nurse at South Chicago Community Hospital. So she wakes up to the sound of a knock at her bedroom door, which is not that crazy because they're living. It's a bunch of girls who all live in this door or this townhouse right. together. You wouldn't think like, like that's not too crazy. Exactly. I wouldn't think anything of it. Right, like how I used to knock on Danielle's dorm door <sighs> at two in the morning, and also would have a switchblade in her hand. So it was just like yeah. So she opens it to find our boy Richard Speck, and he has his switchblade and his pistol in both of his hands. He tells her, like, hey, I'm not going to hurt you. I just want your money. And she's, like, clocked. <laughs> okay. Clocked. So he then rounds up five of the women who are also living there and puts them in a bedroom at gunpoint. He orders them to lie down on the floor and then cuts up bed sheets with his knife and ties the girls up in nautical knots, which he knew from his trade. So that's, like, another ev- point of evidence against him is that he knew what was up to do these nautical knots. He knows what's going on. He's engaged. His core is engaged. So they were under the belief at this point that he is going to just take his money and go, which appeared to be the original plan for the night for Richard's Beck. 
because the girls kind of thought like, hey, let's just tell him like we'll give him the money and then he'll let us go and everything's going to be fine. You know what I mean? That was honest to God. The thought pattern that they had was that if we just give him what he wants, he'll leave us tied up here. And and they were nurses. They were trained to deal with trauma and PTSD and all that. So they're like, okay, we'll keep him calm and that, you know, we'll try to get him out of here. Yeah. So that appears to be what Richard's original plan was for this night. Okay. So Mm -hmm. all intent for all intents and purposes, this was supposed to be it. But what throws it off is that. An hour later, three more women come home who also end up getting tied up in the bedroom. So now there's nine of them all sitting in a room together tied up and they don't know what's going on. And it's kind of thought that he kind of lost it after he's seen them come home. Yeah. So about midnight is when Pamela Wilkening is led out of the big room that all the girls are in and into a bedroom where she is stabbed and then strangled. She is the first one that he kills, and it's believed that, like, the two girls coming home caused him to really panic, and then he was like, fuck it, I'm just going to kill right. everybody. And especially so, with Pamela, too, because he had told her, he was like, oh, you know, get up so you can take me to your purse and yeah. give me money type of thing, and she spit in his face and said, I could pick you out of a lineup. Yeah. And that kind of was like, I mean, that's what he says, too, is that that's what really, which we'll talk about a little bit later, too. That's what really got him mad. Yeah. Was like, oh, she spit on me. Mm-hmm. Which, you know. Good for her. I wish she would have just spit acid in his right. eyes. You know what I mean? He deserved everything. He deserved he deserves everything that he got. Yeah. And he did get a lot. So he deserves everything that's coming to him. Yes. Um. But also at the same time, here's the thing. I don't, I think that he never planned to just rob them. Like, I think that's kind of, like... It's so brutal that I don't think for a second that this was not there was not some kind of intent behind what he was doing where he knew what was up and had planned to go there and murder somebody at least. Of course. So I think like maybe it started as a robbery or whatever the case may be. But this man is like a true ass sociopath. Oh, yeah. Just horrible person. It's not just a matter of like he wanted the money. He's horrible. He's been proven to be horrible. He's he raped these women and killed these women before her, before these eight nurses. So, like, before he did all it because happened. because they were women. Yeah, and he had yeah. you know he he wanted to have control because he's a fucking exactly. pussy. So he's so strong though. This man is not strong. <laughs> no. So excuse excuse my use of words. That's just like the the first thing that immediately first, comes yeah. to mind is just he's trash. Yeah. So pamela's murder is followed by mary ann jordan and suzanne ferris who are also stabbed uh suzanne was stabbed 18 times in the chest and back before being strangled with nurse's stockings right and then mary ann was stabbed three times in the chest once in the left eye and once in her neck and what kills me about this too is that i know we'll get into it when we talk about them all but they were they had a connection with i think it was Suzanne is marrying Suzanne was, Mary Ann's brother. Yeah. Yeah, They Suzanne was engaged to Mary Ann's brother. So when this happened, he lost both his sister. And his fiance. And his fiance. All at one time. Yeah. And so I'm only describing these two murders like really intently because of the fact that this shows that this was more than just like perfunctory robbery. This was rage. This is yeah. rage. You don't stab someone in the eye and you don't stab someone 18 times. You don't stab because you're just trying people. To, 
Yeah. <laughs> in this one is night. rage. Yeah. So, like, as much as everyone, like, was trying to be like, oh, it was just it's robbery or this, no. or he was tra- trying to say that, it was never about money. This was about rage. Yeah. You don't stab someone in the eye and strangle. Like, especially stabbing for men is supposed to be a, like, or it's theorized to be a sort of, like, um substitute for sex like a like a rage filled substitute for sex so he was just like horrible like this he's a fucking piece of shit and i hate him and i had, do not believe for one minute that he did not go here with the intention to kill these women oh like, he absolutely he, did he, he knew. knew he scouted it out beforehand he knew yep. what it was he knew who they were he yep. didn't just he wasn't like oh this is just some weird private residence like he knew who lived there yeah and so. this too is why i know like he for sure was engaged like his core was engaged he was here for the full workout because he takes a break to go wash his hands and then takes the remaining women to be killed one by one Mm -hmm. so like that's how you know like if someone has the forethought to go sit there and wash their hands and take a break and do all of this like this person is fully engaged in what's happening right there's intent behind it yeah it's like okay nothing okay lady Macbeth, fucking calm down thank you he's like be out damn spot I don't right. have time. He didn't say he's um, too fucking illiterate <laughs> to even I mean, quote yeah, Shakespeare. <laughs> so then the last woman to be killed is 22-year-old Gloria Davy. So she was raped twice and then sodomized with a foreign object before being strangled. So she was tortured for almost an hour. So, like, that's another thing for the case of him. Because he later goes on to say that this was like a moment of temporary insanity. Oh, and he's blacked out and he doesn't remember. If you're blacked, blacked out, out, you're not doing, yeah. you're not this intricate and you're not this intense. No. You're just all doing no. it all just like, you know, and being sloppy about it if you are. This yep. wasn't this wasn't something that was sloppy. This is something that was done for enjoying the pleasure of seeing another human being suffer. Right. And so he was engaged in this. He knows what's going on. Yeah. Only 23-year-old Cora is the one like, she's the only one that escapes. Mm-hmm, because so when one she... of the other girls, sorry, and we're going to go into the story. Okay, no. Um, yeah, because during it, she eventually slips out of, like, the sheet that's tied around her, and she's able to roll under the bed. So she's just, like, mm-hmm. hiding, praying under this bed that he doesn't notice that she hid under there. And he was really kind of out of it by the time so he finishes so he got there at 11 mm-hmm. and he leaves at three in the morning yeah so it's been hours he loses track of how many of them there were he just takes all of the money he stole from them and he leaves mm-hmm. and then cora stays there like she just stood even i think after hearing him leave so the ho- most horrible thing about this is like cora had to listen to all of them die yeah like she was just hearing all the noises for hours so she and, like, literally seeing was so things. Too, yeah. While she's under the yeah, so he finished at like basically by three thirty a.m. Mm-hmm. and she stayed under there till six in the morning. Yeah, she was there till six in the morning, and then she literally finally came out. Like when the sun came up, she goes out and she climbs onto the window ledge and just starts screaming. And she says, "They're all dead. My friends are all dead. Oh God, I'm the only one alive." Yeah. So she's just like traumatized to the max. I just can't even imagine, honestly. It's like, oh, it's horrible. It's so... And the, these it's types like, of it gives things, you chills. Like, yeah, these oh types God. of things didn't happen. There weren't, like, yeah. mass murders like this. Like, there were, like, murders, but it wasn't, like, a giant, like, something to this degree. And this had never been... And we talk about it, too, like, with the Grime Sisters. Like, the sort of loss of innocence that's occurring during this time period. You know what I mean? It's just 
people have never seen girls being horribly murdered right this on this scale before like this has never happened before a mass murder to this scale hasn't happened before especially by one person right and mainly in chicago in chicago like, too yeah you, you know like the city i mean like obviously before this was the grimes murders and things like that that really took the innocence Peterson of murders. chicago yeah but nothing you know those were also children you know now we have yeah. grown women who are supposed to be protected in nursing school that aren't even safe at this point. Mm-hmm. So this was like a really hard thing to process for the city too, because it's just a lot of people talked about too. This is the end of the age of innocence. You know what I mean? It's just like, yeah. there is no more being able right. to just ignore the fact that what's waiting out there. Exactly. So we're going to get into the victims now. So the most important that's- part. The most important parts, like, this is the most, like, we wanted to just talk a little bit about them and who they were as people and give some actual life and kind of just, like, reverence to them because they deserve to be honored yes. as more than just, like, these people that he killed because I think a lot of the family members of, which in the article we read, a lot of the family members put their input and just said that, like, my sister's name is always, so- or my sister or my fiance, like, whoever it is, is always associated with his. Like, you can't get her as a person right. without him. It's always so, Richard. Yeah, yeah, they're always so intertwined. Yeah. So. And by the way, this uh, this article was really great. It had so much insight. Yeah, it's really good. And it is from the Chicago Tribune, and Rosemary Sobel wrote it. And this was actually written on the 50th anniversary of the murders. So this was written Which in... Which is in 2016. 2016, yes. So it starts off with Nina Joe. Shmale? Shmele? Yeah. Shme- I was going to say, I think it's Shmale. Okay, so Nina Jo Shmale, who is, or she was, 24 years old. She was from, like, near Wheaton, mm-hmm. which yo dad Suburb. lives over there. Yes. Suburb. Um, and it took a while for her to find her calling. She was 19 when she decided she wanted to be a nurse. She volunteered at an elder care facility, which is why she ended up becoming a nurse, is because her brother was also studying to become a doctor at this time. So it's just like she volunteered at an elder care facility. She loved being a caretaker. Her brother's also studying medicine. Like it's something that she really just felt really called to do. Um, she's like me. She loved Elvis <laughs> cats in the color pink. Like Amazing. Here I am. Um, she planned to marry her boyfriend, whose name was Peter McNamee, after nursing school, which I didn't realize this. So a lot of them were all, a lot of the nurses were engaged because mm-hmm. you couldn't get married while you were yeah, in school. Yeah, you couldn't get married. You couldn't get like, pregnant. Wear, you couldn't wear makeup. You couldn't jewelry, wear nail polish jewelry. Nail like, polish. Yeah, I was like, whoa. Yeah, they compared it to being in a convent and a boot camp is what they yeah. said was what nursing school was like. Literally, and you were like, I couldn't imagine being young and like you like twenty one to so twenty four and doing 21 this twenty one to twenty four or like even nineteen years old. You couldn't like I can't imagine just being like no jewelry, no this, no this, and then you had to look perfect too. They wanted your uniform to be clean, no yes. stuff on your shoes. It's like literally, it's like boot camp, literally. So they had to live in dorms that were attached to the hospital for the first two years, but then the girls in the 2319 house were in their last year so they got to live in the townhouses yeah so it's kind of more they got a little bit more freedom um in the house the girls were actually really close and they loved to kind of come home and unwind and play pranks on each other um 
Nina was 24 when she was murdered and her brother said that like he kind of wonders what it would have been like to grow old with her as a sister and kind of see what that experience was like because she was so like she loved to play pranks. She was silly. She was somebody who he was he wanted to see what her life would have been like. You know what I mean? So she was such like an asset to their house to just like really silly like the pictures of her that are in the article and he really just wishes that he would have been able to see what it was like. Um, I thought this really kind of summarized it well and kind of what we're trying to do here and the whole point is he said, quote, what a waste that Nina and her friends weren't able to give the world everything they had to give or enjoy its pleasures. So I think that's kind of the point of putting the focus on the victims and kind of talking about them as people is that like these people didn't get to fulfill what their purpose was because somebody was a fucking horrible asshole. Right. And it, the you know article I mean? starts off with her brother going through old photos that he had just found like in the basement yeah. that he thought might be like water damaged and he like puts them on the like the projector because it's like a roll of uh like the pictures and film and just like going through the pictures and remembering his sister and finding something that he thought he lost. Yeah. You know, after so, all these years. Uh, it's just like heartbreaking to hear him talk about it. And then, you know, as the articles goes on, we you hear from so many different people who are close to these girls. And it's just so sad because it's like one guy loses his sister and his fiance. One guy, like his sister is gone forever and he wishes that he would have known, like she would have known what kind of person he became and like would have gotten to meet his kids. Like I can't imagine what that feels like to just like be 20 years old or 20 to 25 years old and your whole life is ahead of you. Because they say that, which we'll talk a little bit later, one of the girls, like, her life was just starting at this point. So much yeah. was going for her, and it was just in a second everything is gone. Exactly. So the next girl we're going to talk about is Patricia Ann Matusik, who was 20 years old. She was born in 1945 to Czech parents. So a lot of these girls are from immigrant families. Yes. Or, like, it's an immigrant-heavy area at the, during this time. She lived on Michigan Avenue next to a funeral home, which I think is, like, badass, so. <laughs> so she decided, to, Patricia decided to be a nurse because when she was 14, her older cousin Tommy was dying, and she would actually go visit him in the hospital and really take care of him and yes. sit with him, and that was why she decided to become a nurse. And I love this, too. So both of her best friends were named Arlene. <laughs> They were like Arlene 1 and Arlene 2. Right. So they're both named Arlene. And one of the Arlenes, who is Arlene Kubasic, she ends up dropping off Patricia at the house that night at around 1030. And she was supposed to come in for coffee. Yes. And she didn't because she was tired. And she says she said the last thing she said to Pat was that she'd see her next Friday when they hung out. But obviously that never happened. So... It's so weird with this case. There are so many near misses that night where people were supposed to be at the house. People either left the house before everything happened. Like, it's so weird how things right. kind or of Right, or, like, out. ring the doorbell to, like, get something in the middle of the yeah. night and then leave. Yeah. So Pat's parents actually, they asked Arlene to go get her clothes from inside the house because they wanted Pat to be buried in what she was going to wear for graduation. So her best friend is the one who goes in to get her graduation clothes. And she also helped do Pat's hair and makeup for the funeral. For the funeral, yeah. She's a really good friend. I couldn't do that. 
I'm sorry to tell you, yeah, but if you died, I, I couldn't, I'm sorry, I if couldn't you died. do your fucking highlighter. <laughs> like, I couldn't. If you don't put Anastasia <laughs> Beverly Hills Amorizi highlighter on my cheekbones when I'm dead, I'm gonna put it all over your I'm fucking face. You're just gonna be fucking Dude. glowing. Oh my god, I just want to be so glowy when I die. Oh, oh my god, you better put Mac. I'm gonna tell you right now. Here's what I want you to put on me, okay? When I die, I want a Mac face and body, okay? Because that's mm-hmm. a glowy, hydrating foundation. Because I'll right. be parched. Because I'll be dead. Yeah. So the Fenty glowy Beauty foundation. easy drops. I want the Easy Drop. I want you to mix together. Okay, here we go. I want you to put on a mix of the Easy Drop and the Mac Face and Body. Put them together in my face. I'll be glowing. And then I want a like a huge application of the Amorizi highlighter mixed with like the Halsey highlighter. I want them both on my face and I want them on my eyes. And then I want you to put like the thickest pair of lashes on me ever, so I just look snatched for God. Right. I'm so glad Arlene was such a good friend and did not do this to her friend when she <laughs> during this, these traumatic moments. So God bless Arlene because God bless. Arlene. I couldn't. I couldn't do it, and I'm not going to do anything that Danielle just told me to do. But you know, I'm going to put it in my will that she has to or fear <laughs> imprisonment. <laughs> it's like in um. Well, you you've never watched Pose, but um, one of the characters um passes away and they go to the wake and it's like a public service one so it was it's you know they didn't really do anything and of course you know all the all the amazing characters on pose were like we have to redo her makeup we have to change her wig because that does not look right and they're like doing it like while she's in the casket like <laughs> i want to get done like that i want someone to care about me that much that they're like you know what let me just fix her up with this Anastasia. right well arlene did Arlene, Arlene was through. that bitch, okay? I love Arlene. Um, so next is Pamela Lee Wilkening. She was 20 years old. So I can't, I can't imagine. Like, it's just so weird. They're 20, so young. yeah. Like, I'm 26. I can't imagine, like, I have not fulfilled my life purpose. Could you imagine you're 20 years old, your life is just starting, and then this asshole comes in? Right. Who looks like the devil incarnate. <sighs> um. Pamela was really quiet. She was from Lansing, Michigan. She had just kind of normal, quiet childhood, but she yes. really loved to watch her brother race cars. Who was He was seven years older than her. And her brother is one of the, like, oh, her brother just saying that, like, he wishes that he could have seen what his sister would look like. Like, he wanted to see them age together. Yeah. And that, like, she really wishes that he could have met his kids. Or she, yeah, she could have met his kids and his grandchildren. I think he had, like, eight grandchildren. So he was really upset that she didn't get to see, like, see right. him do that and see what they would look like together. Yeah. I think that's part of, like, when you have siblings that you like. Some of us <laughs> don't like our siblings. But when you love your siblings, it's kind of fun to just, you know, age together and do things together. And well, kind yeah, of that's what you think is going to happen. That's the whole point. You, know you what don't I mean? think it's these like, types of things are going to happen. And also yeah. what's really sad about this is, like, before she was killed she called her mom to say that she wouldn't be able to come in for the weekend because she was like i have to stay graduation's coming soon i have to and have to stay and study for these exams and that was the last time she talked to her mom yeah i mean it's just heartbreaking like i just it's so it's so weird because um i my sisters are way older than i am so they already like had kids by the time or, or almost had kids by the time i was born and everything so it was like whatever right so um but I do have, like, a plethora of cousins, like, one of whom I'm very close with. I couldn't imagine, like, not getting to grow old with him and have these life experiences because somebody killed him. You know what I mean? It's just, like, so hard to imagine that happening 
like in one fell swoop, especially for the guy who lost two people at one time. Like, how do you even go on after that happens, you know? I can't even, I can't even imagine it. So that's what we're going to move on toward is Mary Ann Jordan, who she became a nurse because she had an Irish grandmother named Grace. Yes. Who had been a nurse at the University of Michigan. And she really inspired her to become one. She wanted to kind of continue the family tradition. And then she also had a little brother who had Down syndrome and his name was Billy. And so she wanted to specialize in pediatric nursing because she had such a special bond with him. These so, people are just so amazing. Like their, yeah, their hearts are just like, man, sometimes I think about it. I'm like, God, I'm such a bitch compared to some people. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, these like, women are good. out here just I mean, like, I want. Right. <laughs> and we're great. We're, we're, I have to give us the credit, but I no. could not do what she does. No, no way. So she was from the South side. She loved to swim and ice skate and play softball and baseball. And like, she just was active. Like, yeah. she was doing everything. She and it says really she just had, just... she had a wicked sense of Irish humor, which I love. Mm-hmm. I'm like, got a shout out to my Irish girls. Because you can see she just had like so much life. You know, yeah. Like she was just even one of the pictures of her, like it's just, just it's so, so much life and happiness and just you know, some people radiate yeah. that. And it says she just like she made everyone around her laugh. Like that's the type of person she was. And she was actually never even supposed to be at the townhouse that night. She had moved out and was back with her family. Yes. So she wasn't supposed to be there. But then her brother Phil comes home and he was engaged to Suzanne Ferris, who does live at the townhouse. And Suzanne asked her to come to a sleepover so they can mm-hmm. talk about the wedding. Yeah. So she was never even supposed to be there in the first place. Which is just like, in, like the way things happen, it just it's like, just so... it, it could have been, not that the whole thing could have been avoided, but at least like they possibly could have been spared from this. Yeah. You know? And so like her and Marianne and Suzanne, they came home around 1215 and they walked upstairs and Richard Speck was there. So it's just like you walk into your house thinking you're safe and everything's fine with your friend only to walk into something so horrible. And uh, her sister said like what she really wants people to know is like how wonderful they were and like how hard it was for her brother. I think her little sister, like how hard it was for her brother to lose his sister and his fiance all at one time. Yeah. And how horrific it was and how long it took him to kind of recover from it, which you don't really recover, but how long it took him to kind of get everything back together after something so horrible. Yes. So Suzanne Bridget Ferris, she was 21 years old and she's also from the South side her dad and her family used to call her Kooky or like Cookie. Kooky? Kooky. K O O K Y. Yeah, Kooky. Kooky. <laughs> so she was really resilient. The dad didn't bother her. Like it was just like whatever. Body I mean, fluids us. and all this was no bother. <laughs> yeah, she was like, whatever. And she would make her own clothes. She was kind of really just stylish and pretty and just I mean, like she was a bad bitch. She was like, this doesn't bother me. I don't care. I'm gonna become a nurse. So later on in her life, it was actually found out, like, somebody came up to her siblings and said, like, hey, did you know that your sister actually sewed a prom dress for a girl who couldn't afford one? Like, that's the kind of person she was. Um, And that was later on. You know what I mean? No, I was just going to say, and that that was part of her help. I mean, helping people was what really encouraged her to get into nursing school. That's what she wanted to do was help other people. 
So this is the one where I was saying it was really sad because everyone was kind of just talking. It's, it's sad all around for all the cases, but it's really sad in this case because her life was really starting to turn around and begin. She's in nursing school. She meets Phil, who's a really great guy. She's engaged. Like, her life is just starting. Yeah. She's like a baby. She's 21 years old. So everything got snatched away in literally the blink of an eye. So her brother says that he still struggles to kind of explain to his kids who his sister was and what happened to her. So there's a lot in a lot of these cases, a lot of family members would tell their kids that either their aunt died in a car crash or something like that to mm-hmm. kind of soften the blow and, and all of that. Right. So, Which we'll get into for one of the girls, too, where that yeah. happened. Yeah. For Gloria, I think. I think so, yeah. too. Uh, so next is Valentina Passion. Passion. P-A-S-I-O-N. P-A-S-I-O-N. Yes. So she is 23 years old. She is another one of the Filipina exchange students who came to the U.S. So they would basically there during this time, there was a lot of there was a need for nurses. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of Filipino women, Filipino women who came to fill this gap and would come here for more schooling and they would work and uh, be able to make enough money to send home to their families who needed yes. it. So. Yeah, she graduated went, from uh, Manila Central University before she yeah, came she to the U.S. too. one of the top ten, so she was really smart. Um, and she came here with the intention to really just make good money and send the money home to her family who needed it. So she is one of three Filipino women students who live in the house at the time. So yes. it's her, Cora, and then Merlita. Yes. So she had actually just arrived in May of 1966. She'd only been here since May 9th. Yeah. So she hadn't really been here that long. Literally, and like, she, two months. Literally. And she was, I mean, which happens, you know, she was closer to the three other Filipino women than she was to the American girls, but they were still all really friendly. Yeah. So I mean, of like course you're going to be, tension. yeah, you're going to be closer to the other Filipino girls because you have you have that in common. You have that journey together of coming to yeah, a new I mean, country too, and going through all yeah. of this. And it's comforting, you know, she just got there, like, they were all here for a short amount of time, really. They all came here in around the spring. So it was comforting for them to all be together in one house, having this shared experience together, Right. You know? Also, so, what I loved is that, like, the, the letter she would, like, write to her family and talk about, oh like, God, the yeah. Chicago weather and how bad it was. She described it as really terrible, which, I mean, she's not wrong. And then, Is she wrong? No. no. And then she said, but work is easier than in the Philippine Islands. Only the patient's are as big as water buffalo referring to, <laughs> referring so to like American the patients. shade of it all the like, shade of it all honestly me <laughs> I mean, yeah so she was also a really good cook so that night her merlita and cora were kind of like her and cora and then another one of their friends who we'll talk about later they had all sat together and ate something called pancit mm-hmm. that sounded really good so <laughs> she was a really good cook she would cook for them like it was just like a really good, she had a really good bond with the other girls. So that night, like every night everything happened, her, Merlita, and Cora were actually huddled in a closet together when they heard what was happening. And then a girl came and told them to come out and that like, oh, he's not going to hurt us. They opened the door and came out and then the uh, Merlita and um, Valentina were murdered. Yeah. But obviously Cora escaped. So... This was this was this was really interesting too because I really didn't think about it. So 
in the Philippines, this was a really big case, too. Like, it wasn't just a big thing here. And the murder was really heavily covered in the Philippines. And a professor actually teaches about these three girls. Like, she teaches about the three girls and the nurses and, like, how important they were. To, yes. Like, how important nurses were, to Filipino, Filipino nurses were to the U.S. and also, like, just talks about their three stories individually. So, yes, like, this is uh, Catherine Sisniz- sorry, Saniza jo- Choi, the professor at the University of California mm-hmm. at Berkeley, which is, so which is crazy. You, that, I mean, not crazy, but it's just, like, amazing that she can teach about this at Berkeley because it needs mm-hmm. to be talked about, obviously. Yep, yep. Um, so... Next is Merlita Gargiulo, mm-hmm. who is also 23 years old. She also came to Chicago in the spring of 1966, and she was on the plane with Cora, and they ended up being roommates. Oh, cool. So, yeah. So she loves, sure, she loves sing. She was really kind of shy, kind of more reserved, but she also was another girl who would send a lot of her paycheck home to her family. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of strong, like, there's a lot of strong kind of connection to their family back home in the Philippines. Oh, yeah. Big family bonds. Think. And that's what yeah, you big do. Big family bonds, yeah. Especially with, like, immigrant families. Yeah. Like, you know, if, like, true. someone comes over, like, you you always help out. You always send something back. You know, mm-hmm. like, that's what you do. And she was, I think, the only one in her village that had ever gone to America. Yeah. Which is, like, it's like, a, that's a big ugh. deal. It's a really big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah, it's a big deal, too. And then it's just, like... Could you imagine, like, you come that far, you get to go to America, you're making more money, you're doing better, and then this is, like, horrible. Like, that has, then your parents have to find out. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, like, oh, my God. Um, She, unfortunately, like, she had her throat slashed, which is also another thing of, like, I think he, he did a lot, like, he was more, not more, but I think there was a certain amount of more aggression towards the two women of color here. Oh, absolutely. Like, so much more aggression of just like you, he slit their throat, you know, or he slit her throat. You know what I mean? So I don't believe for a second that he also, yet again, right. Like, a man, no blackout here. a white man who grew up in the South in the sixties. Yep. Like, come on, who also had yep. anger issues and hated women in general. Like it's not, mm-hmm. it's not a good mix. Yep. Um, her body and Valentino's were both flown back to Manila where 100 people were actually waiting to watch the caskets be taken out and were there for the processional things. Yes. So lastly, we're going to talk about Gloria Jean Davey, who was only 22 years old. She was second of six siblings, and she was really headstrong, creative, independent. She was an English major at NIU, but then she, no problem, right. you know? We all change our um, minds. We all change our minds. I thought I wanted to be an FBI profiler. Here I am. You still could be. None of the above. I, it still happened. You, it here still here we are. Here we are in this podcast instead. <laughs> exactly. So she was the president of the Student Nurses Association of Illinois. So, you know, she's an overachiever. I love her. Yes. Love that journey for her. So the day before the murders, her little sisters were actually really excited because she was going to be moving back home. Yeah. So they were like really, they were waiting up and so excited because mm-hmm. their sister was moving back. She was going to be graduating. It was really just an exciting time for them. So that night, Gloria's fiance dropped her off at about 11 o'clock. And then that's, she's the one that calls her mom to say she's safe. Yes. Maybe they both did. Um, she calls her mom to say like, hey, I'm safe. And then 
comes home to find that Richard is upstairs. Right. So her sister Lori said, this is about how, how her mom kind of took the news when she found out Gloria died. She said, was murdered, not died. Uh, we kind of lost her. She was not the same person. He killed more than eight people, which I think is kind of important. Like that's a that's a really like hard hitting quote because it's like all these people he murdered, that ripple effects out to so many other people who also cared about them, who are now just getting put under the umbrella of like Richard Speck killed them. Let's focus on him. You know what I mean? Exactly. Okay, so her sister Lori, who was only 11 at the time, she actually went up to accept her sister's nursing diploma for her, which I thought yeah. was, like, really sweet, but also, like, so horrible. I couldn't even imagine doing that. Yeah, her dad told her, you know, like, shoulders back, don't cry, and had to walk across the stage knowing that her sister and her sister's friends weren't there because they were brutally murdered. Yeah. And had to just, like, I can't even imagine, um, like, I wouldn't even be in, like, my body, like, mentally yeah, while doing that. no way. I mean, that would also be my dad's response if I if that was me. But I'm like, I can't imagine your dad just being like, you know what? Like, go up there and push it all down. I'd be like, I'm going to crawl. Right. So, luckily, our girl Cora, she's the one that escaped. So, we're going to talk a little bit about her last. So, she is from a South Manila province called Batangas. And she was known, like, this This area is known for something called a Bali song which is a pocket knife with a concealed blade. So yes. like, this is why I was like, she's a bad bitch. She said, quote, you are surprised I survived. She reportedly told friends a few days after the murders, but I come from a place where they make Bali song. Why should you be surprised? Exactly. She was, she like, was like, I'm don't that bitch. Don't yeah. do it. So she was from a family of eight and she also came to Chicago on May 1st of 1966. She also sent home money and she, while she was working um, and luckily she did get away. She was one of the only ones that got away and I'm glad she did. I'm glad somebody got out of this horrible travesty and got to live their life. It had so, to be like by the grace of something because yeah, like if, if she, if she hadn't gotten away and hid under that bed somehow, like who knows what would have happened. Yep. Or if they would have even caught him. You know what I mean? Right. Like, you know, so when they, so I took a little clip from the transcript for the court case. So they asked her, how long did you scream in a sitting position with the window open? She said, I screamed there for about five minutes and nothing happened. So then they asked her, like, what did you do then? And she answers, then I jump off to the ledge. And they asked her, you climbed down to the ledge on 100th Street? And she says, yes. And then they asked her, what did you do on the ledge? And she said, then I screamed for help. I screamed for about 20 minutes. I just so she's just even... sitting screaming for help for 20 minutes before somebody finally called the police. So after even... the police, it's horrible. It's I can't bad. imagine. <laughs> so after the police arrive on the scene, she is taken in and she had to be sedated, obviously, because she was so horrifically traumatized. Oh, yeah. I would just and... be throwing up my guts yeah. everywhere. Yeah. Which a lot of police officers did. They went in and saw it and were like. Yeah, the first officer who went in there who, like, she finally, like, they called after the house mother came. And, yeah, and then even the house mother had to go in and see all the bodies of her students that were in this house. Laying everywhere. Like, there are girls in hallways and bedrooms. Like, it's just, I can't imagine. I really can't. Yeah, and the first, like, policeman who was on the scene had only been 
on the force for 18 months. Oh, God. So this was, like, his, like, first time. And then, you know, like, reporters and policemen who went in there said that there was so much blood that when you went in, it, like, seeped up over your shoes. Oh, my God. Because that's how thick it was. Like, oh, nope. Oh, God. No. So after she's, like, coherent enough, Cora gives the police a sketch of Richard Speck, and then she describes his born-to-raise hell tattoo. Which, as a side note, I'm like... That's the most, I'm like, for somebody who's a criminal, why would you get such an identifiable tattoo, you fool? Fucking idiot. I'm like, he didn't care. Out of, he didn't care. He's too dumb to care. Right. So, based on this sketch and, like, the description of him and, I mean, Richard is known to be in prison a few times. Okay, he's not, like, he's no stranger to the police. They conclude that this is Richard Speck and they begin the manhunt for him. Yeah. So... Fingerprints are found at the scene, but it takes them a week to confirm that they match Richards, but they were pretty sure that it was him. They were like, uh, yeah, here he is. Yeah, yeah, it took them literally, like, five minutes. Like, the FBI came and they were like, oh, okay, here's a stupid-ass fucking tattoo. This is who it is. Yeah, they were like, here he is, goodbye. So, this murder obviously was really shocking, because this is pre-Gacy, or anything else, like, any mass murder on this scale, I guess. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's like... There's no Gacy. There's no... Well, I think there was H.H. Holmes, right? Well, there was H.H. Holmes. And I think the lipstick killer was before this. Yeah. But that wasn't... Eight women killed by one person. Yeah, and all at once in one night. All at once. Yeah. So the papers are literally, like, going wild. Like, his picture's everywhere. They're looking for him. They're trying to actively find him. So on July 16th of 1966, that's when the pressure really starts to get to him. And he knows the police are closing in. So in a cheap dive motel, he slashes his wrist with a piece of... He smashes a wine bottle and then cuts his wrist with a glass piece from it. Mm-hmm. So the manager of the hotel ends up calling the police and is like, yo, come get your man. Not He's the like, police, come get your fucking did, boy. That's exactly what he said. Boy. Um, so he's taken to the emergency room and an emergency room doctor at Cook County Hospital sees like he sees his patient for he's like oh okay like he's getting treated for these yeah he was 20 yeah he was 26 years old the person working at the hospital like he had like (laughs) literally our age right now like we're i i i mean i honestly i would love to catch someone like that i wouldn't want that to happen but the fact of like doing that but he was 26 and he had literally just been reading the paper about what had happened literally is like cleaning blood off of richard when he sees this born to raise hell tattoo and he's like clocked Clocked. because he had just been on (laughs) he had just been on a lunch break and he's like um i just saw this man in the paper i just i i'll be right back and he like backflipped and like pulled out his razor i love how everyone has to fucking backflip on this podcast no one can just everyone walk out of room (laughs) everyone is brendan eerie they got a backflip so (laughs) he said this is dr Leroy Smith, he says, quote, I was just as amazed as everyone that this despicable person landed on my surgical service that evening. <laughs> me like, coming to your yeah. house. Yeah, I was literally about to say, I'm like, this is me when Gina comes to my house. I'm like, I was just as amazed that this despicable person landed on my, <laughs> on my service this evening. <laughs> so he literally was like, really quick, calls the police. Because oh, this is the thing I love about our, this doctor, too is that when Speck begged him for water and said he was thirsty, he just grabbed him by the back of the neck and started squeezing on his pressure points, and he says, did you give water to those nurses? 
Mm-hmm. Like, he was like, um, not on my watch. And then he, like, spit in his eyes. He said, no, I didn't do that. not I wish. on my, my watch. My watch. It was, that's actually what happened. <laughs> yes. So, anyway, the police are obviously called. Like, the doctor was, he was sitting there. He calls the police. He says, clocked. And the police are like, we got you, fam. They come to they come to the hospital. Right, they come in. They they use their acrylic nails. They pick yeah, him up like, and scrub his neck. They, yes, they pick Richard's back up with their acrylic nails, like it's a claw machine getting a prize, yeah. and they toss him out into the cold. Our versions they are put much better the than the original, but it's yes. fine. Okay, so they get Richard's back. They get Richard's back. He's taken into custody via acrylic nail. So three fingerprints are found to be on the second floor bedroom door. So they're waiting for the match that's going to confirm that they are his. And then eventually they confirm, uh, yeah, it's your boy. So they took kind of several clues instead of a confession. They were like, he attempts suicide when the manhunt begins because he knows that he's the one. Um, Richard ends up telling his lawyers that, oh, like he had taken drugs that night and that like, all this stuff. Like, he basically is just trying to, yet again, like we're saying, yeah. say that he had nothing I to do with this. Out. He was, I blacked out. It's whatever. So they're like, yeah, he did this. It's your boy. So also yes. on the on the whole front of like, oh, he took drugs. So Cora actually looked up at him when he was tying her up. And she said that his eyes showed no sign that he was on drugs. His pupils no. were normal. Nothing was dilated. Like, Cora is a nurse. She's trained to look for these things. And she didn't see any signs of that in him. So that's bullshit. Right. So he says that he has no memory of going in the house, that he blacked out, like all of this. So we can call bullshit on that because he planned this. This is like methodical. If right. it was just about money, he would have taken the money and Also, he, didn't. he fucked with smart women who yep. know how to detect things and you yep. let one get away. So now you're fucked. Now you're screwed. Yep. Sorry. And he was fully in it to win it. You know what I mean? You don't stab someone in the eye and have this much rage if you're not a goddamn sociopath. Like, he was in this, okay? To be fair, he threatened to stab me in the eye, like, every five minutes, so. That's very true. I also am a sociopath. It's okay. Yeah. So, the trial ended up being in Peoria, Illinois, because they had to do a change of venue because, of course, it was one of those things where it's like, he can't get a fair trial in Chicago, and it's like... There will be no fair trial. We all know he's trash. It's over for him. Okay. Right. Whatever. So um, April 3rd of 1967 is when, of course, his trial starts and he tries to plead insanity. He's like, I'm so insane. I'm so sorry. But then. He said my brain is mush mush. Yeah. No worker. <laughs> he attempts to plead insanity at his trial and basically He's evaluated and declared competent during the time of the murder. So he's fit for trial. So they were trying to say that he was not fit to stand trial because he wasn't competent of the murders and what he did, all of this stuff. Okay. But they basically are like, yes, he was. All right. Thank you very much. So the psychiatrist examining him tried to say that he had obsessive compulsive personality and that he had the Madonna whore complex about women. Where it's essentially like that you revere these like virginal women and anybody who doesn't fit your sort of like idealized virginal, which was essentially like the whole thing of like women who don't fit my ideal are just trash. You know what I mean? Right. He was literally like Frank Reynolds where he was like, I like boiling denim and banging whores, except Frank Reynolds is much more of a gentleman than this man will ever be. Absolutely. (laughs) 
So he also was diagnosed with something called organic brain syndrome, which was attributed to an injury that he had when he was younger. So they tried to argue that he was insane at the time of the murder. They were like, he is not insane now, but he was at the time of the murder because the drugs affected his organic brain syndrome, like this whole big thing they tried to pull off that obviously right. didn't work. Which is bullshit. But it's interesting that he did have a brain injury when he was younger. Yeah. Because yeah. we see that, you know, with like so many other murderers. Joe and Gacy. Yeah. The whole. So organic brain syndrome is really this impairment of like your memory and your judgment and your ability to kind of function. And like this is obviously they attribute it to either a psychiatric illness or some kind of like something that was caused by an industry an yeah. industry an injury so <laughs> that's what essentially the syndrome is yeah. but i don't think that he had it i think that he's just a man right, right? And yeah and i think also think with like the head injury where it's to the point where it's like you can't even differentiate between like right or wrong yeah like like what they did like after he uh, like, with the psychologist and everything, like, going through that, it was just, like, he literally, like, has no, like, differentiation, like, morals, like, differentiation yeah. between, like, right and wrong, essentially. Yeah, literally. So, the whole thing that kind of seals the case is Cora. So, Cora stand like, she's on the stand, and even though she was literally, like, petrified, like, she was, like, terrified to be in the room with him, obviously, she stands up. She walks up to him when they ask her to identify who yes, committed the I love murders. This, and, yeah, because they were like, who did it? And she gets up off the stand and walks mm-hmm. over and points directly in his face. Like they said, she was yep. almost touching his face and mm-hmm. said, this is the man. Yep. And then, like, then there was like applause. Yeah. So she's I the one that essentially. I made that Lady Gaga reference in this I podcast. love that <laughs> album. I'm sorry. So Our Forever. <sighs> go buy our pop on itunes thank you go buy our pop yeah you can't even do that anymore but okay you can it's so fine. <laughs> <laughs> i can't stand you so on april 15th of 1967 after only 49 minutes of deliberation the jury sentences richards back to death and i mean what is like what a beautiful finish to the story except it's not i would have loved for that to be the story i'm i'm kind of ambivalent about not ambivalent, but I'm kind of wishy-washy with death penalty. But, like, in this case, I'm like, yes, give it to him. Absolutely. 100%. Right. But he didn't get so, it. So. He didn't get it. No. Because in 1972, the Supreme Court invalidated the death penalty that he was sentenced under. So he actually just gets resentenced to 400 years in prison or, like, 1,200 years in prison. Like, some ridiculous amount. He ends up dying of a heart attack on December 5th of 1991. So... He got justice, like, he was, we got justice, like, he is dead, and he lived a terrible existence before he died, but, like, also, wish it would have been a really painful lethal injection, so. Right, but even though he managed to avoid the death penalty and died in 1991, um, he was still kind of around. In May of that year, in 1996, television journalist Bill Curtis went behind the walls of Stateville Prison and came back with a secret videotape that showed Richard Speck with women's breasts, and I'll have you talk about this, because of hormone treatments that he was getting in prison. Yeah, so the video was actually from 1988, but like this was, it came out in 1996, but right. the video was filmed in 1988, and it's literally like 
so during the 80s, Statesville, which is now a haunted house, uh, was a free-for-all, <laughs> Which I will never go in. No, thank you. It's not, a, it's not great. Right. So it was essentially this video was for this documentary that they were, like Richard Speck and whoever were, like, trying to sell this kind of prison documentary because at this time, Statesville was literally a free-for-all, which they called it, like, an inmate-run prison where it was just, right. it's no whatever, you know. Yeah. Nobody cares. So essentially, it's just, like, a video of a camera, like, opening up to an empty room. Like, they're not even in a prison cell. Like, they somehow were able to get a hold of an empty room and sneak, like, just do this whole, like, sneak a camera into a prison. All of this stuff, okay? Right. Just absolutely bananas ass shit, okay? It's, it's like, so, how it kind of reminds me of um, how on last podcast they were talking about the guy bringing the watermelon into Alcatraz. And how, like, like no one's going to suspect something hidden in a fucking no. watermelon. Like, oh, yeah, let Who's me gonna, bring this How in. are they going to know? How will right. they know? Who's going to know? <laughs> That's literally this. Like, it's like, who's going to know? And it's literally just, like, an entire huge, like, camera down his pants. That's right. literally what's happening here. It just gets snuck <laughs> into the prison. It's whatever. So they're filming in this room, and it's back with two other inmates, one of whom is his, like, lover in prison. And he has, like, these great set of tits, like, Good he for him. Full you know? on B cup tits. Yeah, he was full on, like in the words of Henry Henry Zabrowski, like a perky B cup. Like yes. that's what he has. <laughs> so he essentially got hormones snuck into him. And it wasn't I don't think he was transgender. I mean he might have been, but this was sort of it was not so much as like he was transgender or maybe like this is how he felt comfortable, like whatever the case would be. He it was like him proving a point that well, the person was he, a free for all, right? Yeah, it was that, yeah. and then he also he did this as a me- like a mechanism to stay alive, because mm-hmm. he became what is called a queen bee, which was that he sort of got passed around to inmates, and you know, him having these beautiful tits was like a perk for him to not get killed. So right. he said queen he and- bee, and then they started the savage remix. Absolutely. Yeah. So he in this video is just shown. Like, he's snorting cocaine. His tits are out. They tell him to take off his clothes. But it was really, this video was, like, really, dis- it disturbed me for some reason. It was just, like, oh, like, I don't I didn't so, watch it, oh. and I'm probably don't, not going to. Don't. I was really upset that I watch it, because I was just, like, oh, my God. I really shouldn't have seen that. It's really bad. I didn't, I didn't want to see it. Because it was just, like, they were, like, hey, why don't you get naked or whatever, like, the case may be. And so he does, and he's wearing just, like, these panties, like, these blue, silky panties. Like, it's just a whole... It's a whole thing, okay? Me me coming home from work, (laughs) taking off my pants, just have my blue silky panties on. Blue silk panties. Eating Um, a quesarito. Yes. So he then starts, like, towards the end of this video, just blowing this guy, like, blowing Mm -hmm. his lover. And this video actually gets shown before the Illinois State Legislature. Can you imagine? Everyone's day was just ruined. I mean, they video they stopped the video as he started to blow the guy, but it was just like, okay, now we've seen enough. So this is what actually encouraged the Department of Corrections to make some really important changes because before this, it's completely a free-for-all. So they were like, we need to, like, maybe stop this. Like, people just they, can't be we, getting B-cups in prison, you know? Getting B-cups and then just giving people blowjobs in an empty room with it being videotaped in prison. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Yep. Maybe that's not okay. So... This is this video is really important because this is where he does like this video confession to the murders where it's just like at oh, one yeah, point he's like, he's I kinda didn't just care. 
Yeah, Sorry, he's like, I don't care. Like, yeah. it's whatever. And he just freely admits to committing the crime and is like, yeah, I'm high at the time, but I would have done it sober is what mm-hmm. he says. It's kind of just like, yeah, OK, I would do it. And like, it's crazy. So they're interviewing him and they were like, hey, how many people have you been having sex with since you got locked up? And he's like, oh, I can't count that high. Like, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's a big joke. And then then they ask him, like, what are you locked up for? And he says eight counts of murder. And then they ask him, did you kill them? And he goes, sure, I did. And then we get the infamous line of, like, it just wasn't their night. So that's where that line comes from, from Mindhunter. I'm sad I didn't get to kill him. I'm sad that didn't get to happen. But yeah, oh my god, fucking Mindhunter. That's all I think of is him, like, throwing that fucking pigeon into the fucking fan. (sighs) Which, that, I, okay, so I'm just going to finish a little bit and then we'll go into that, too. But, like, yeah. he – and during the interview, they're kind of like, oh, is – they asked – I think they asked his lover. They were like, is he crazy? And he's like, no. And his lover says, like, oh, he told me somebody spit on him. So the interviewer is like, oh, what happened? And then he says, that's what set it all off. I was on acid, drugs. At one point, I was spit on in the face. She said she was going to pick me out in a lineup. I went off and hit her in the chest with a knife. There was two more – there was two more there, so I offed them. Wound up killing, wound up trying to kill off all the witnesses. So this is the first time that he sits down and is, like, admitting to it because he says, like, hey, I carried a gun that knife or, or I carried a gun that night and, like, all of these things that we didn't know before, essentially. So yeah. he's just kind of like, yeah, okay, I would have done this even if I was sober. Like, I was high, but I would have done it anyway. So because he literally says... um, I'd have done it sober. That bitch spit in my face is what he says. Because he's fucking trash. Anyway, he first confessed to the murders for the first time in a public setting when he spoke to uh, Bob Green, who was a Chicago Tribune columnist. Mm -hmm. And he confessed to it in 1978. So that was kind of like the larger one. And then in this video, he like sat down and you find out how fucking horrible he is. You know what I mean? Right. When you sit down with your titties out, the truth comes out. Yeah, that I mean, how can they not? Free exactly. the titty. Free the truth. Tell the truth. Shame the devil. Yes. Um, so this is where we get that whole scene from Mindhunter, which takes place in Mind, literally season one, episode nine, I want to say, of Mindhunter, uh, where you John watched Douglas- it 50 times. <sighs> For those who don't know, I love Mindhunter with a fierce passion like i'm so upset it's not getting renewed same it's one of my favorite shows of all time so i love that scene. i love how i love how jonathan groff handles that scene i thought it was so beautiful i was living for it and i hate that they condemn his fucking character after it pisses me off no spoilers but justice for fucking holden ford they treated him like garbage when he was just doing the lord's work okay he was doing the lord's work anyway this is that scene is from when John Douglas of the who is who's Holden is based off of who he John Douglas actually was a consultant on the show and everything. So he okay that's a lot of the stuff was really close. So he's one of the founders of like kind of OG behavioral science unit members. And he refers to a, pr- a prison incident spec revealed to him in an interview. He said, quote, he found an injured sparrow that had flown in through one of the broken windows and nursed it back to health. When it was healthy enough to stand, he tied a string around its leg and had it perch on his shoulder. At one point, a guard told him pets weren't allowed. 
I can't have it, Speck challenged, then walked over to a spinning fan and threw the small bird in. Horrified, the guard said, I thought you liked that bird. I did, Speck replied, but if I can't have it, no one. <sighs> horrifying. Uh, it's horrifying no. that it's real. Like, that scene, yeah. like, I remember watching that scene in the show and being like, oh, okay, okay. Like, right. it was just like a, oh. You know? It was just so weird. I thought so, it was just written for the show, though. I didn't know that that actually happened. Oh, no. A lot of the stuff that happened is actually stuff that happened in John Douglas. Like, that he he said something along the lines of what Holden did. And, like, yeah. everyone was like, oh, you're crazy. And it's like, you have to get on that level with these people. Right. Everyone have listening to. right now is going to be so confused. Just go watch Mindhunter and you'll understand what we're talking about. Just watch that one episode. That interview is really good. And it's really true to what happens. So, anyway... So I want to talk a little bit about Mindhunter. And then to close up, I thought we would really talk about these kind of two cases of near misses okay. with this that are so weird. So the first one is Tammy Sochoff. So she rang the doorbell the night of the murder looking for bread, which like big mood. <laughs> so she was like, I want a sandwich. I want yeah. a sandwich. The words of my grandma, sandwich. So sandwich. she wanted, she was going to make a little bit of a panino. So she wanted, you know, she needed bread for a panino. So right. she not or she rang the doorbell and then Speck makes two girls go with him downstairs at gunpoint to answer the bell. And Cora led him to the front bell, or like the front door, and not the back one. Because mm-hmm. she was trying this is Tammy says that she thinks Cora did this on purpose because she would have known the difference between the bells. Like she would have known. Front and back. Yeah. So she yeah, led the front her to, and back. she led him to the wrong door so that Yeah, she led him to the wrong door. So then he opens the door, sees nobody, and literally saved Tammy's life because you know he would have brought her in there. Yeah. So then there's also the case of Luisa Silvero, who was friends with Valentina, Merlita, and Cora. So she was also a Filipina exchange nurse and she had been over at the house earlier. This is so weird. So she had been in the house earlier that day. And they were doing manicures after their shift. I think they worked like a seven to three shift. And okay. so then Valentina cooked them pancit, that Filipino dish. And then she planned to have a sleepover with them. But she is like, oh, hey, you know what? I haven't written letters to my boyfriend in a long time. Like I have to go respond to them. So I'm going to go home and then I'll come back. So she gets asked that like, so she goes home. She gets a call saying, hey, can you come in? Like, one of the girls won't be coming in tomorrow. Can you come in? So she's going to have to be at work early the next day. So Mm -hmm. she goes over to the house to tell them that she's not going to be staying over. She rings the bell. She rings the back doorbell, and Richard doesn't answer. So she literally is ringing the doorbell, and she actually got kind of got pissed off because she was like, why aren't they answering me? Like, what's going on? But she just left. And Richard didn't answer the door because he was kind of hoping that if he ignored it, it would just, like, stop Stop. ringing, and it did. And so she missed, she, she, she done did good by deciding to write to her boyfriend, you know, always sit at home and write letters to your boyfriend instead of going out with your friends, you know, you never know. Yeah. So (laughs) yeah, yeah, sure. So she literally like, and she was, uh, it was an article from Vice about her where her, I think her nephew, that was his like great aunt, like wrote about her and kind of like how she didn't talk about it for a long time because of the shame right. she felt and all of this. And um, it's like, that's just so sad because, it, it, you know, there's nothing that she could have done. Yeah, literally nothing. And she, I mean, it's so sad because it's like her, that was like her little friend group. And could you imagine like 
you have two of your close, like two of your close friends just die at the same time, and you would have been there. I can't even imagine like, having two close friends. That too. That's having that happen. <laughs> that's the real kicker here. She has two close friends. Right. So those are just two near misses that I thought were like really like this case is a whole bunch of weird near misses yeah. and things that had to happen. Yeah, I knew about so, the first doorbell one. I didn't know. Yeah. About the second one. She didn't. She didn't come forward for a long time about it. Like, she was kind of just like, oh, my God, you know? Which right. I would be, too. Yeah. Um, But then I would just – I just wanted us to, like, kind of finish up a little bit with – before we get into haunting stuff. Uh, Cora, she went on to, like, have a really great nursing career. She worked at a veterans hospital. So she ended up, I think, about five years ago. She retired and then spends all her time with her – she has six grandchildren. So she has a lot of grandchildren – Yes. She went on to, like, live a really great life. Um, but she said that she still has nightmares about him all the time. Oh, yeah. Uh, all the time. Obviously, why wouldn't you? So he kind of, like, haunted her her whole life, especially when there was kind of talk of him maybe getting out on parole in the 90s, like, all of this stuff, or, like, in the 80s. So it was something that really haunted her, and she kind of couldn't believe that he was actually dead when he was declared dead. So she said, quote, I think there was somebody up there who was hiding me from him. Like, so it's like God watching over her. Okay. Which, yes. And, yeah, it says that, um, because she she later moved back to the U.S. too. Yeah. Or she moved back to the Philippines and then moved back to the U.S. Moved back to the Philippines, came back to the U.S. because she was like, it's a better place to raise my family. And she yeah. was a nurse at Georgetown University Hospital in D.C. And she was 73 in 2016. And even though she declined to be interviewed for the specific story, she mm-hmm. says that she still exchanged emails with John Schmale, who was Nina's brother. Yeah. And she told him that she had never forgotten his sister Nina's kindness and that she still misses her. Yeah. It's just, just like... It's horrid. It's heartbreaking. It's horrid. Like, this is one of those cases that, again, like, we did two cases that really changed the landscape of Chicago, like, which we're a podcast that focuses a lot on Chicago. But, like, this was a case that really did change Chicago. Like, this is the lead up to the Gacy murders. You know, it changes society forever. And it goes on to change, like, it ripples, you know? Right. Well, I remember I was... you have it beginning in Grimes and then now. Yeah. I I even... um, No, you're fine. I remember... I asked my mom, you know, just to see if there was even any connection with, like, Richard Speck or even... Because she was, like, five at the time this happened. This was in 66. And I was like, do you even, like, remember? Or she was like, I don't... She's like, we don't have, like, any, like, family ties or anything or, like, anyone, like, family friends. But she said, I remember my mom, so my grandma, her mom, being so just completely distraught over this happening she's like i just remember my mom being inconsolable about this going on because this this had never happened before Mm -hmm. like we said you know like and like my grandma was like just an emotional person to begin with but like this was just such a big deal and for it to happen to these women especially and then have like because my grandma was like you know in her 20s at the time like she was like somebody like close to these like girls ages so for her like just even like I mean, not even the people just, like, who directly it happened to, but the people who also felt this trauma 
in such a heavy way, like just women in general or classmates, friends, people hearing about it in the news. Like my mom was like, that's all I remember is like my mom just being so upset about it. And I didn't understand. Like my mom was like, I didn't understand what was happening. It was just like, okay, like something happened. My mom's upset about it. But like that's how far it affected people with like the grief and trauma. And you see that on, like, Mindhunter, too. Like, I didn't really get it until I was researching the case. I was like, oh, okay, because they were talking about how, you know, people didn't sleep. Like, people were scared in in their own houses. Just, like, so it was such a terrifying, like, it just instilled so much terror throughout the whole country. You know what I mean? Right. So this was, like, the aftershocks were felt everywhere. Yeah, and even, like, the nurses, like, after that, like, when they were allowed back to the dorms, like, they put all their beds together. Like, they all slept next to each other, like, went on shifts to, like, watch to like make sure no one was coming in just like to, I couldn't mm-hmm. do that I literally, it's literally could not do just that. like so much trauma it's just horrible but yeah it was important for us to really talk about this and to especially highlight the victims and their lives and talk about each one because I mean today is Memorial Day mm-hmm. so we have to you know for me Memorial Day is you know like more than kind of like what's brought up in like you know the media and things like that for me it's just Memorial Day is just even, like, just thinking about all these women and, like, remembering that they were people. They had lives. Mm-hmm. They had boyfriends, fiancés, friends, family. You know, like, it's important to remember that. So I think today is a fitting day to record this episode on. I mean, it's a day of remembrance in general, but, like, these women deserve to be honored, too. Right. So today the townhouses on East 100th Street are still standing and occupied, but there are no longer, like, student nurses there. Yeah. And the whole, the old hospital is now called Advocate Trinity. And two officials at the Consulate General of the Philippines in Chicago, when asked recently about the Filipino nurses, weren't familiar with the crime. So there's still things that aren't, you know, like, obviously people, like, can forget or, like, aren't familiar. So that's why it's also mm-hmm. important to talk about it. Yeah, Even though, this like, is, this happened a long time ago, you know what I mean? Just right, like the it was 50 case. years. Like, a lot of people yeah. don't remember it. It's it was 50, 50 years, years at the time. Yes, but for the people who love these women who died, their deaths remain very vivid, and so do their lives. Yeah. And I love that this article ends with, um, their lives are what John Schmiel wants the world to see, Nina's brother, and he mm-hmm. can't help but believe that that's what his mother wanted too. So, and then he ends it with, Dorothy Schmail died years after her daughter did, her death hastened by heartbreak. But before she was gone, she placed four carousels of slides neatly in a box. She wrote her daughter's name, Nina, on a piece of pink paper. She closed the box, surely hoping that one day it would be opened. (sighs) And it's just, you know, like, you just, like, have that, like, lingering effect of... They had whole lives ahead of them. Yep. In this case, especially, it's, like, they're so young. Like, I'm 26, and I'm still, like, I'm so young. You know what I mean? Like, it's so, my life hasn't started. And, like, really for them, their lives just were all starting, and they were all going in such a great direction, and then it's just gone. You know, I just, it's just so weird. It's so, like, I mean, you hear about this case and things like that, but it's so different. Like, yet again, like, with the John McGacy case that we covered, like, being so close to home to it and realizing, like, these are girls from, like, our neighborhood. These are girls from places that we've been and seen. You know, it's just like, oh, my God, that could have been our mom. That yeah. could have been whoever. You know what I mean? It hits. It's yeah, so that's an, another weird. thing. Like, when my mom was telling me, I was like, that if my grandma had been a nurse, like, that could have been her. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I could have lost members oh. of my family with this. 
just like with a lot of other things. So I think it was really important for us to cover with these Chicago cases that we were doing because this is our hometown and this is something that happened that extremely impacted the city. Yep. And it's just horrendous and even like going through we've, it. We've covered like the more like we've covered the three big cases that really changed the Chicago landscape now. Like we've covered the big three right. which are And of course Grimes <laughs> Grimes. No, I was sorry. I was thinking of uh, the Nicki Minaj lyric where it's like, with a big three, don't need a big speech. That's literally these three cases. Check the something, check the spreadsheets. I can't, I can't remember the entire thing, but that's basically what it is. And there's, there's (laughs) more. We have, we have way more lined up. Uh, We will be talking about our summer series that we're doing that we are Mm -hmm. so excited about. You guys are going to get a lot of interviews with a lot of awesome people. So get ready for that. And if you have anything you would like to tell us, or if you're from Chicago and you have any interesting stories related to this case, or even just in general, even if you're not from Chicago and have never heard about this before, send us an email, mostexcellentpod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. We want to hear your stories, your hometowns, anything interesting that you would like to tell us or to just say hi. Or you can send us a DM on Instagram and Twitter at mostexcellent and give us a follow for future episodes. And we can't wait to continue this adventure with you guys. It's going to be a badass mm-hmm. summer. I'm, I'm so excited. It's going to be a fantastic time. But I'm excited that we we did this. We did Murderous May. And we talked about we did, some we really... Finished. We finished at the last minute, but we, <laughs> we finished. We finished. We did it. You know what? Everything's busy right now, guys. Danielle's yep. moving. I'm going to be moving soon. There's so much shit going on. But we're here. And we are not going anywhere you can't fucking mm-hmm. get rid of us so don't even yeah. try don't even try it but you try will right now beach. because i'm i'm tired of shit so mm-hmm. you can try me for this next 15 minutes this, in which i will be falling asleep. this 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 next week and then yeah. and then you will see me again and then never so more. exactly on that note be excellent to each other and we will see you guys soon bye bye